Welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. I'm David Brody. Glad you're with us. It's Tuesday, October 20th. We're exactly two weeks before Election Day, and also we're two days away from the third and final debate. Guess what? The Presidential Debate Commission says this time they're going to mute the microphones of both candidates when the other is answering the first question in each topic of the evening. Kind of interesting since the liberal media and social media has literally been trying to mute Trump since he became president. And now, guess what? They're going to literally be able to do it to a degree, at least Thursday night, we're going to discuss. Also, the Catholic vote. They are crucial in 2020. Where did Joe Biden, Donald Trump stand among them? We've got the info and analysis. And Joe Biden tweets all about being a champion for LGBT rights, but apparently he's okay with eight-year-olds becoming transgender. We're going to drill down on that today as well. But first, let's talk about the backdrop to this election. We know about the mail-in balloting issues, right? And now we have social media censorship as well, something the president is making a big deal about at his campaign rallies. And as far as I'm concerned, the Biden family is a criminal enterprise, and that's what it is. It's a criminal enterprise. Smoking gun emails shown. We just found them. You saw that. The media, right, and big tech, they won't, they won't allow it. Charlie Kirk, you know Charlie Kirk, great guy? They shut down his site because he mentioned it. That's true. It's not fake news. You heard him mention Charlie Kirk, uh, and he is exactly right. The influential conservative was literally locked out of his account after he tweeted out a story about mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania that was widely reported at the time. Later, it was corrected. Still, Twitter says he was, quote, violating rules against posting misleading information about voting. This, of course, comes on the heels of Twitter and Facebook censoring a New York Post article about Hunter Biden's allegedly shady emails involving his father. So for more, more on all of this, let's bring in Charlie Kirk, the founder of Turning Point USA and a victim of liberal Twitter. Charlie, thanks for being here. Well, I, I don't know if I wear the victim label like the left does, but yes, currently I am locked out of my uh, Twitter account. And uh, as you said, I uh, tweeted out something that was widely reported at the time. And 19 hours later, the story reporting changed and you can't edit a tweet. And so then they locked down my entire account, all 1.85 million followers in a hostage situation saying that if you do not bend the knee and admit guilt uh, and basically delete this singular tweet, then we uh, will not allow you access back to your account. Now, by doing so, as soon as you do that, it stunts all the reach of future tweets. And it also just... In my opinion, it's so incredibly totalitarian and tyrannical that I have to have my entire audience be held hostage by a couple of, you know, social media, you know, giants, I guess, social media tyrants. And it really is something that I think a lot of us need to recognize that there's two governments in our country, that we have the federal government and then we have the Silicon Valley government. And I think the Silicon Valley government is disturbingly more powerful than even our own government. So, Charlie, what are you going to do at this point? I mean, you got two million roughly on Twitter. You got a lot more in other social media places. What's the game plan at this point? They're kind of boxing you in. Yeah, they box me and I really have no options. I mean, we have drawn attention to it and we probably have to bend the knee. It's probably what we have to do. And it's a false choice, but we're 14 days out from an election. I have 1.8 million Twitter followers. I average 130,000 retweets a day. I think it would not be good for the country and for the election if my voice all of a sudden just disappears. And so I don't know what my account will look like on an engagement side. But, yeah, look, tragically and unfortunately, we tried other avenues. You know, we were hoping that Twitter would try to reach out to us and have a dialogue. It's not. 
Uh, they didn't. Uh, so we're, we're hostages. And so we're going to have to make a decision. And unfortunately, like everyone else in this situation, we are going to have to pay fealty. And uh, that's a really unfortunate situation. We're still wrestling with we have other options. We don't. And I feel that every hour that goes by that I'm not able to tweet, uh, they're winning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to understand what you say, and I, th- I understand it, but just, just so we're clear, when you say bend the knee, in essence, you have to delete the tweet, and at that point, uh, you'll be back up and running, in essence, but they're going to then well, at that point. Well, go ahead. go ahead, Charlie. Yeah, no, you're right. I have to delete the tweet. I have to admit guilt, but then we did this back in March when we tweeted about hydroxychloroquine, mm-hmm. and for example, we were adding about 4,000 followers a day prior to that. And as soon as they made us bend the knee, the same thing, you know, uh, delete the tweet, we started adding 40 followers a day. For six months, we were with it. They put you in a completely different shadow band category. The moment that you go through this process, and it took us months to break out of it, and we've just started to. And so now we're just going to be basically in a kind of invisible Twitter jail, if you will, where less people will see our content, uh, less people will be able to engage with us all because we tweeted something that was widely reported at the time. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. It was widely reported at the time. And so what now you There's one word we were missing. That's it. I want to be just make, make clear. It's nothing we said was misleading or false. I was not trying to steer my audience to believe something that was incorrect. There was a widely reported article that was written hundreds, hundreds of times that said 372,000 ballots were rejected. Well, it was missing a word by other people's reporting that said ballot applications. Mm-hmm. It took them five or six hours. They fixed the article, but my tweet was still up. And now they say that your whole account is locked unless you do it. I say, wait a second. I wasn't trying to mislead people. I wasn't trying to do this. It'd be one thing if they didn't lock out my entire account. But now they, they basically say, if you don't do this, you're unable to use our platform. And just the idea of that kind of totalitarian behavior should just be just really creepy. Charlie, have you had actual uh, verbal talks with Twitter at all, or is this all kind of an online exchange? How, how do you go about fighting Twitter? No, and again, I fighting is, I wish I could fight because they're just so invisible. Like you just talk to a chat box and they kind of do that intentionally. Yeah. They dehumanize the process. Uh, they make it intentionally um, digital and, and almost intentionally automated so that they can almost always defer blame, like, oh, that was the algorithm or that was the chat box or something, right? And I wish it was more human. I wish I could just get on the phone with somebody and walk them through this. And other tech companies do kind of have, have more of a front-facing. Facebook is a lot better. When you have a problem, you can usually talk to somebody about it. Uh, Twitter is the worst at this. So, look, we're at a moment now. We're two weeks out from the election. I think our platform is an important one. I think we have a lot of important things to say. We're probably going to have to end up um, admitting to this. But I want to just make one other point, David. Yeah. Two weeks ago, I took a picture with a random gentleman in Idaho who looks like but was completely unrelated to the group of people that wanted to kidnap the governor of Michigan. So then a story circulated on Twitter that is still up right now, insinuating that I was involved in the kidnapping of the Michigan governor. Hundreds of thousands of retweets trending on Twitter, front page of Twitter. It was so bad, even BuzzFeed had to say that it was untrue. They weren't made to delete those tweets. They weren't made to delete their accounts, yet that's still up today. So they're allowed to lie about me. They're allowed to slander me, say that I'm involved in some sort of kidnapping scheme. But I miss one word on a widely reported story and they lock me out of my account. 
You know, Charlie, you were saying that it is a Silicon Valley government, uh, that, that that's mm-hmm. the government we have, uh, if you will. Uh, it sounds like this is drone strikes coming from the Silicon Valley government, specifically against influential conservatives like yourself, obviously the president and others. Would you agree? No doubt. Yeah. And here's what's so creepy and scary about the Silicon Valley government is how do I petition them? I can't vote them out of office. I can't I can't recall them. I can't hold them accountable. I can't even sue them. So there is no redress against these companies. None. We have, we have the only thing that people say is, well, create a competitor. Well, they'll buy up all their competition. That's extremely expensive. It's long. It's risky. And it's uncertain. And we've tried that. And so now these companies are just more powerful than ever before. They have more influence than ever before. They have more control over the zeitgeist and the conversation in our country. And so the question remains is, how am I supposed to deal with this other branch of government? I mean, our federal government terrifies me at times, but at least I can sue them. And if I really don't like what they have done, I can vote them out of office. I have no such capacity for cross-examination with the Silicon Valley government. Charlie, what do you make of the federal government's role in all of this? I I know they're going to bring the CEO of Twitter in front of, uh, they're going to subpoena him and Zuckerberg and all these. But here's the thing. Uh, Conservatives typically want less government. They want some regulations. They want some guideposts, but they want less regulation. So in this case, what are you going to do? Are you going to to regulate Facebook and Twitter? That, That might be even more problematic. Maybe. I mean, we like small government because we love liberty. And if you start thinking of these companies like a government, then and not as a private corporation because they don't act like a private corporation, maybe then all of a sudden we might be able to think a little bit more creatively about how we can handle them. And trust me, some of these regulations are just written for the benefit of these major tech companies. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. It only protects their incumbency. So we have to be very careful the way we do this. But I also think we should be open-minded. I think that this situation requires non-dogmatic thinking, meaning don't say no to something just because it was plastered on a bumper sticker in some think tank five years ago. You just kind of come to it as, will this actually benefit the country? I think that's the best way to go about it. And if there's an immediate dismissal, like, oh, no, we don't like government regulation, I say, no, that, that, that's a really bad way to interface on this because we're dealing with something we've never dealt with before. That has trillions times more computer processing power than we did in the 1980s. That has data on every single of American artificial intelligence. They act like a government and they can restrict, restrict free, free speech rights much more effectively than any sort of police state ever could in the history of the planet. Yeah. And the final thing I'll say is this, is that you know, we as conservatives have to stop worshiping corporate America. Corporate America is not on our side. They do not hold our values. They do not hold our viewpoints. And quite honestly, the Democrat Party has become the corporatist party, and they want to use the levers and the um, almost overwhelming power of the corporations uh, for their own benefit and to make America in their image. Charlie, I got 30 seconds left. Uh, what's the game plan going for, forward? You're talking about bending the knee and, and having to t- maybe delete the Twitter. What's the timetable on that? Because I would think time is of the essence here, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we, we have drawn attention to it. We are hoping for a different outcome. Uh, we're just going to have to bite the bullet, if you will, uh, get through this, and then hopefully post-election we can come to some form of a um, path forward and a policy way. But I'm not going to – I don't think it's the right thing to ice myself out of my account 14 days ahead of an election. Yeah, kind of lose the battle to win the war, hopefully, at the yeah, end of the day. That's yeah, right. All right. That's Charlie, that's Charlie, Charlie uh, great to see you. I hope you Thank come you. back soon. Thanks. All right. Uh, Charlie Kirk there in the, I guess, the Twitter witness protection program, or he's trying to get out of Twitter jail, uh, as he calls it. Uh, and it is an extremely serious situation. Let's be honest. Uh, they're going, they, Silicon Valley, they're going after conservatives. That's not analysis. That is fact. We're back in a moment with Paul Fari from the Washington Post talking about the debate coming up on Thursday night. Back in a moment.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Cooler. All right, the presidential debate, the big one, the last one, the final one coming up here in just a couple of days. And uh, they're going to mute the mics. I mean, look, it's the only way you can probably get President Trump to stop talking. Just mute the mic. Uh, and that's exactly what they're going to do uh, come Thursday night. Let's discuss more about this with Paul Farhi, the Washington Post media reporter. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, David. Always, always fun to do it. Uh, well, what do you make of uh, this uh, unprecedented move? Uh, I get we're back at kindergarten here, I guess, uh, with, with if not both candidates, we, definitely one candidate for sure who did a lot of talking, but they both did. I mean, Biden was telling Trump to basically shut up. So, I mean, this is like kindergarten, Paul. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, well, it might bring some civility back to the debate. The first one was kind of a free-for-all. So maybe we get to a more civilized debate this time, uh, a greater exchange of ideas, perhaps, uh, a give and take, you know, what we used to have in debates. Uh, but, you know, it's uh, Trump's style. He did this in 2016. He interrupted Hillary Clinton a lot, and he did it in the first debate with Joe Biden. He interrupted Biden a lot. So I... I feel for the uh, debate commission trying to figure out exactly what to do. Uh, they don't want to repeat of the, the Biden, uh, the first Biden debate. And um, this is their solution. I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, it is what's going to happen this time. Well, it's interesting. It's only going to be for a small portion of the debate, just right at the beginning of each separate topic. So, I mean, I guess it's something. 20% is better than 0%, I guess. Um, I want to play you a, a quick soundbite from President Trump, who was speaking to reporters about Kristen Welker. Uh, you might imagine, uh, here he goes, uh, and talking about some of her political leanings. Have a listen. By the way, the fact that Kristen Welker is, you know, a died in the world, radical left Democrat or whatever she is. Okay. Okay, then ask, why are you defending her? Then ask her, why did she delete her account? Would you please have her put her account back? And you know what? It's not going to affect, I know you want to stick up. It's not going to affect me. I'm going to be there. But, you know, I told you about the last one and I was right. And I told you about Savannah Guthrie and I was right. And I'm telling you about Kristen Welker. Kristen Welker should put all of her statements back on. She deleted her entire account. She shouldn't do that. Paul, what do you make of some of his comments about Kristen Welker? Well, you know, David, I was uh, tweeting about this last night, and if you go back to 2015, not even 2016, this is what Trump does. He works the refs. He is always, has always complained about the moderator before the debate and after the debate. He did it about Megyn Kelly, of course, we remember in 2015. He did it with Anderson Cooper, Martha Raddatz. Uh, he did it with Chris Wallace. Um, uh, certainly, um, uh, he's doing it now with uh, Kristen Welker. Um, it's just his style. I think in some sense, he might be trying to lower expectations. And that way he can come off as the underdog and, and do this miraculous debate performance. But it is a classic move by Trump, something he has long done, uh, and he's doing it again, of course. 
You know, Paul, some of those reporters were yelling in the background, that's not true, and that's not true when he, when she was ta he was talking about Kristen Welker being a Democrat. But of course, we, we do know that she was a registered Democrat back in 2012. And, and beyond Democrat or Republican, it does seem like you have to wonder, at least if you're a conservative, how in the world do folks at NBC and, and some of these other left-leaning, let's be honest, just like Fox is right-leaning, I mean, we got left-leaning outlets too, that they would be chosen as these debate moderators. I mean, the Jim Lehrer days of the past just seem far gone. I'm surprised that, that conservative uh, candidates would even agree to something like that. Well, you don't maybe remember this because it was in the pre-Trump era, but Jim Lehrer also got criticized That's for true. one or another. Um, we think of Jim Lehrer as the ideal moderator, but even he was called out. I would only say, David, that every human being has opinions, has thoughts. Uh, you as a professional journalist, we as professional journalists, try to put those things aside. Um, I think I do think that Trump is exaggerating the degree of bias in Kristen Welker. Um, she didn't delete her account. She froze it out because she was getting all kinds of flamed, uh, you know, di direct messages. Uh, but nevertheless, she has a long record of being a rather good yeah. and rather rather independent uh, reporter. This is Trump again trying to set up his debate performance. Um, you know, it's like the coach who says the refs are going to, we're going to come into that game and the refs are going to get us. Paul, I've got to ask you about some of the censorship stuff that's out there with the New York Post and, and what we're seeing on social media. We have, we, our, our wonderful associate producer, Madison, came up with this. I, I thought you'd like it. Um, so, so, and we'll send you one if you'd, if you'd like. They're free. Uh, I was just wondering about what you make of the New York Post uh, being censored because they did have the emails, and, and I know there's the laptop and all of that, but, but just this idea of the winners and losers and, and that Twitter and Facebook are going to choose this, whether you're conservative or liberal, that's got to be a, a bit concerning here. Well, I think the word censorship is a little strong. Um, you know, Twitter and Facebook are private enterprises. They are entitled to set their own standards and do their own thing. You can argue with what they did, certainly. Uh, but but they are throttling what they see as a disinformation campaign. Uh, again, agree or disagree, there are strong suspicions that what the New York Post published was a bit of Russian disinformation, uh, not vetted. Now, I don't think Twitter and Facebook want to be in the business of being editors and, and telling people what they can and cannot see. Uh, but in this case, what? it's the election. And, um, you know, they went through this in 2016 with Hillary's emails and all of the WikiLeaks dump. So uh, I well, guess uh, from a Biden perspective, you'd say they're trying to be responsible actors. Yeah, I got about 30 seconds or so, but there, there really isn't any proof at all that this is a Russian disinformation campaign. I know that's out there, but that's kind of been proven not to be the case, though. Proven? I don't know about proven. I think there is a, a legit reporting um, from uh, American intelligence sources that this is, in fact, coming from uh, R Russian sources piped through uh, Rudy Giuliani and um, uh, shoveled off to the New York Post. Um, you know, I, I, I will not weigh in as, as if I know sure. uh, that it came from those sources, but that is the reporting on this at this point. Uh, does it concern you at all, though, the Facebook, Twitter, the road that this could be going down? I've got about 10 seconds or so. Well, they don't want to be editors. Um, I think they've been forced into it by uh, the, you know, the extreme nature of this campaign. Okay, fair enough. Paul Fari, love to have you back at some point. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
Thank you, David. All right, uh, Peter. I call him Peter. He's Paul. Now we just need Mary. Peter, Paul, and Mary on the uh, water cooler today. All right, uh, when we come back, we've got so much to talk about, including Joe Biden and the transgender issue. Should eight and 10 year olds be forced into decisions about being a transgender? Back in a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody, to the water cooler. All right, uh, look, when you're eight years old and 10 years old, you want to go out and have a good time and play, you know, with, I don't know, toys or, or in, in a playground. Uh, but at least according to Joe Biden, look, if you're transgender and you're eight years old or you want to be transgender, knock yourself out. Uh, don't take my word for it. That's not me saying that. That's actually Joe Biden saying that. That's what he said uh, last week in that town hall with ABC News. Uh, he was asked a question about an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old who wanted to be transgender, and Joe Biden had no problem with it. And we want to discuss all of that now because that could be very unsettling, especially for uh, Rust Belt voters who are deciding in this upcoming election. Uh, joining us now, Peter Spriggs, Senior Fellow for Policy Studies at the Family Research Council, FRC Action. Thanks for joining me here, Peter. Thank you, David. Good to be uh, here. Where do we even begin? Uh, talk to me a little bit about the science here, because there, there is something to be said on one side of this issue, but then Joe Biden seems to be taking it to a whole nother level here. Well, Joe Biden's response in that town hall meeting last week to this uh, woman who said she had a transgender daughter, eight-year-old uh, who's transgender, was his response was a little incoherent, but it was pretty clear that he has bought into the idea that if a child, no matter how young, says that they are transgender, says that they identify with the opposite sex, then we should just accept that at face value. Basically what that means is we are allowing an eight-year-old child to diagnose themselves with a serious mental illness of gender dys dysphoria. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, we need to be sensitive to children who struggle uh, with gender issues, gender identity issues. Mm -hmm. But you know what? There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with something about their bodies yeah. or maybe uncomfortable with some uh, sex stereotype identified with their sex. And we should not be telling those children that they were born in the wrong body. Right. We should be encouraging them to be themselves and um, encouraging them, telling them that they were born in just the right body for them. Well, and this idea that, that you have an eight-year-old going to decide this, this huge issue that could define the rest of their life when I don't even want them putting on too much ketchup on a hot dog at that point. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's just insane. And I mean, we talk about uh, kids can't even vote till they're 18. So, and, and then we're going to do this. Right. And one thing that's important to understand is the science, the research, does not show that a child who experiences gender identity problems is automatically going to grow up to identify as a transgender adult. Actually, the majority of them do not. Uh, one key study, 85% of children who experienced gender dysphoria in childhood did not grow up to identify as transgender adults. Mm -hmm. But if we encourage them to transition, and, and especially if we uh, 
subject them to these radical physiological interventions like puberty blocking drugs, cross sex hormones, and gender reassignment surgery, then we're basically locking someone in in childhood to a path that has serious medical side effects up to and including uh, permanent sterilization. You know, I, I read some of some, not all, but I read most of a, a paper you wrote. I want to put it up. It's, uh, it says, do not sterilize children. Uh, why psychological gender transition procedures for minors should be prohibited? Because from a legislative perspective, this is out there now in terms of some states trying to roll some of this back, making sure that, that, that this is prohibited in certain states. Right. I think that there's finally been kind of a, a critical mass has been reached among some state legislators who realize uh, this is really outrageous. You know, no matter what you think about transgender adults and so forth, or no matter what you think about even a, what's called a social transition where you change your name and your hairstyle and your clothing, mm -hmm. The idea of doing these radical um, physiological interventions with young children is just a, a bridge too far. Mm -hmm. And this is something we should not be doing. It's essentially a, a medical, a vast medical experiment upon innocent children. Mm -hmm. that, that's, uh, I think, violates the, the first principle of medical ethics, which is first do no harm. Mm -hmm. There's example after example of Joe Biden being very clear on this issue. I mean, he says, he talks about LGBT overall being the number one legislative priority, but when it comes to transgender uh, issues, he even talks about transgender in prison and letting basically male prisoners be with female prisoners and all, all of that. I mean, it just seems like how much can this potentially hurt him in this upcoming election, this type of issue? Well, I think if people really understood the implications of what he's saying, it would hurt him a lot more. Now, he was kind of vague in this town hall meeting, and obviously, you know, he had a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. But w what he said he would do away with all the um, executive orders that the Trump administration has, has passed. Well, th what that means is he would uh, force schools to allow biological males into the girls' showers, locker room, and bathroom. He would force girls, he, he would deprive girls of championships and scholarship opportunities by forcing them to compete against biological males mm -hmm. in girls' sports, um, against males who, who everyone knows on average are, are stronger, larger, and faster than the average girl. Mm -hmm. um, he would, um, you know, th there are a number of implications. Those are the implications for children. He would also uh, bring back transgender people in the military. He would impose this upon uh, people in the medical profession, forcing them to do procedures, not for someone's health, but to change their gender. Just so I understand, we have about a minute or so left, but just so I understand, when you say he would force this certain things within school districts and other places, how would he do that exactly? By reversing or these executive orders that are in place? Or explain exactly how that would happen. Yes, well, presumably um, Joe Biden would reinstate uh, a, a um, letter, a, a statement of policy that was uh, um, introduced by the Obama administration in 2016, which said that um, failure to treat transgender uh, students in accordance with their gender identity would constitute vi a violation of Title IX of the uh, education amendments, the, the uh, sex discrimination, the um, law that prohibits sex discrimination in education. So um, Obama did that, Trump reversed it, uh, Biden would reinstate it. Now, it, it will probably go to the courts, but uh, 
the one court, the Fourth Circuit, has already held in favor of that position that Biden holds. Which kind of gets you to the Supreme Court and Amy Coney Barrett. And, you know, these type of issues are going that way. Right. There, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that uh, in, in her hearings, but this is a key issue, too. Yeah. I'm wondering also, and I got about 30 seconds left, but what's the, what is the future here in America? I mean, the LGBT uh, cause has kind of gained momentum in polls, at least. Uh, are you concerned that we're going the same way here with uh, the transgender issue? Well, I think the transgender issue may be the Achilles heel for the LGBT movement if we're going to treat it as one movement. Mm -hmm. We're already seeing a divide between uh, transgender people and some um, lesbian and gay activists who actually oppose the transgender movement, as do some radical feminists. Yeah, Peter Sprague, always good to see you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good information. All right, when we come back, the all-important Catholic vote. You've got Hispanic Catholics, you've got white Catholics, Trump and Biden fighting for both of them. It's going to be interesting, and I can tell you this, very crucial vote coming up. Back in a moment. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. And welcome back everybody to the water cooler. All right, look, the Catholic vote, uh, crucial in 2020. It was crucial back in 2016. And guess what? Donald Trump won the Catholic vote over Hillary Clinton. Before that, Barack Obama won it over Mitt Romney. Who's going to win it this time around? Uh, let's get some answers from Dr. Matthew Bunsen, the executive editor and Washington bureau chief for EWTN News. Dr. Bunsen, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, very good to be with you anytime. Well, let's talk about the survey that you have. And I want to put up something on the screen here. And I, I know it looked at Amy Coney Barrett, and we'll get to that in a moment. But in terms of the actual presidential race, uh, Joe Biden at least according to your poll, leading Donald Trump among Catholics. Explain this. It says, what, 52% or so to Trump's 40%, uh, but it's much different in the battleground states. Talk to me about that. That's right. If we look at the head-to-head -head matchup of all sort of Catholic likely voters, uh, we see Joe Biden with uh, a fairly significant lead of about uh, 10 to 12 points. Uh, this uh, is consonant in many ways with uh, what we're seeing nationally with some of these polls. Uh, but when we dig into the battleground states, and those proved absolutely decisive uh, in 2016, especially where the Catholic vote was concerned, uh, he leads now only by about four percentage points, about 48 to 44 percent. So those would be in battleground states such as uh, Michigan and Florida and Pennsylvania, places where Donald Trump did uh, very well uh, in 2016 with important uh, groups uh, within the Catholic vote. Uh, we always have to be careful about uh, thinking of the Catholic vote as sort of a monolith. It's not. Uh, it's very segmented at this point. And Trump was able to carry uh, the, the majority of the Catholic vote, which we know, in 2016, but especially in certain key districts, swing districts in Pennsylvania, Ohio, again, places like Michigan. So that is going to be the decisive element here in terms of uh, how we're really focusing in on the Catholic vote uh, in a couple of weeks when we have the election. 
But just so I understand, you're saying the Catholic vote this time around, at least in those battleground states like a Pennsylvania and Michigan, is lean, leaning slightly, slightly towards Biden at this point, whereas maybe in the past, in 2016, it might have been slightly Trump? Or what were you seeing in 2016 at this time? Well, at this point, uh, if, if you look at, for example, the real clear politics average uh, in the battleground states, uh, this is collectively, uh, Donald Trump is doing about half a percentage point better than he was in 2016. Uh, that certainly is uh, not necessarily a warning sign for the Biden campaign, but it's certainly something I, I know that they're keeping their eye on. In terms of the Catholic vote, uh, what would be a national lead for Biden is much tighter. Then it's going to come down to the turnout, uh, motivation among Catholic voters. And uh, we have found in the past, certainly in the three other polls that we've done in the last year in our partnership with uh, EWTN News and Real Clear Opinion Research, uh, that uh, Catholics who attend mass more regularly are supporting Donald Trump in higher numbers, certainly than, than are supporting Joe Biden. And uh, historically and statistically, they are much more likely to be ardent voters. So that's, uh, there is an enthusiasm question that we always have to factor in. Yeah, the Catholic vote can be kind of tough to figure out at times. You know, the uh, white Catholics broke, broke very strongly for President Trump in 2016. Of course, uh, Hillary Clinton did win Hispanic Catholics. And uh, can you talk to me a little bit about the difference between uh, white Catholics and Hispanic Catholics and how that breakdown occurs and what you're going to be looking for on election night? Yeah, as I was saying earlier, there, to say that there is some sort of a Catholic vote uh, really just doesn't uh, right. fly anymore. It's simply not reality. It was in 1960 when John F. Kennedy carried anywhere between 80 and 90 percent of the Catholic vote. He was uh, the first Catholic elected president. Uh, now we're seeing a much more segmented Catholic population, and certainly in the voting side. There are uh, demographic differences. There are geographical differences. There are generational differences. And of course, ethnic differences. Uh, we know that Donald Trump does much better among white Catholics than he does among Latinos, the Latino Catholics or Hispanic Catholics. Uh, in fact, among Hispanic Catholics, Joe Biden has anywhere between a 30 to a 40 point lead. A couple of sleepers, though, and this is one of the keys to understanding how the Catholic vote might break out. There is a huge gulf among Catholic voters between those who attend mass regularly and those who don't. Uh, Donald Trump does extremely well among Catholics, especially white Catholics who attend mass on a daily or weekly basis. Joe Biden does much better with Catholics who attend mass uh, much less regularly. And that plays out uh, in areas such as whether or not Catholics believe that a Catholic politician should follow church teaching on certain key issues such as abortion. Well, Overall, 43% of Catholic voters uh, say that the, a Catholic politician should follow the church teaching. That number rises to 60 some percent among those who attend mass weekly. And that's a key element, a key issue for them as they're deciding how to vote. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because I was just about to kind of transition to where Joe Biden may be vulnerable uh, here. Uh, wh where do you see his vulnerabilities within, once again, here I do it again, the Catholic vote. I know we just talked about it. It's, it's hard to put them all into one box, I get it. But, but where is Joe Biden vulnerable when it comes to the Catholic vote? There are a number of areas, I think, that uh, the, his campaign is aware of. They're very aggressive in their outreach in, in this election cycle, much more so, for example, in the Hillary Clinton campaign. Joe Biden is himself a, a self-proclaimed practicing Catholic, so that obviously is going to play into the campaign. As I was just mentioning, that the Catholics who attend mass uh, daily or weekly are much more inclined to vote for Donald Trump. They have a higher enthusiasm rate. Uh, Joe Biden is also uh, on the wrong side of some Catholic issues, such as uh, 
the question of religious liberty. Uh, he opposed, for example, the nomination and confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, uh, which is supported by almost 46% of Catholics. That's a plurality. You think that'll uh, hurt him? You think that'll hurt him? I think uh, as Catholics are looking at uh, key issues, our findings of what are most important to Catholic voters, obviously the coronavirus is up there, the economy is up there, but among key constituents uh, that you need to have voting for you, the issue of religious liberty is there, the issue of Supreme Court appointments is there, uh, ab abortion, those are issues that remain, certainly from the Catholic standpoint, very important to Catholic voters. Abortion is deemed by the U.S. bishops and church teaching the preeminent issue of our time. And so that's going to factor into the, the voting patterns of a lot of Catholics. You think the Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination specifically will hurt uh, Biden to be on, on that? And let's face it, the, the wrong side, at least wrong side of the vote for sure as it relates to the, to the Senate vote. By the way, we have about 15, 20 seconds. Well, Catholics in the U.S. are very concerned about religious liberty issues, especially as they pertain to the Coney Barrett confirmation. 74% uh, believe in no religious test for Catholics or anyone else applying, so that could become an issue on Election Day. Well, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, I really appreciate your time. Great insight, and congratulations to you on the survey over there at EWTN Real Clear Politics. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. All right. Uh, we've got a lot more on the show coming up, including... The debate moderator, Kristen Welker, is she a Democrat? Is she a liberal? Is it another Steve Scully situation? President Trump has a lot to say about that, but guess what? So do we. Back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody, to the Water Cooler. Time now for the last sip, our analysis part of the show. Uh, analyst? I'm an analyst doing analysis. Anyhow, the last sip, I would do the drinking water thing, the last sip, but it's very schmaltzy, very Will Ferrell anchorman, don't want to do it. Uh, what I do want to talk about is Kristen Welker, the debate moderator on Thursday night between Biden and Trump. She's getting a lot of flack, including from the president. I wanted to do an aerial view for a moment, step back and talk a little bit about what that relationship between Trump and the media has been like. David Brooks, the columnist from the New York Times, moderate guy, not a conservative, but a Republican technically. Uh, here's what he had to say about the relationship between Trump and the media. You've been in the uh, mainstream media for a while, as all different sorts of jobs, obviously, a, a columnist and a, a commentator. Uh, Donald Trump, the enemy of the people. I know it's, uh, you know, the media has been very clear that's dangerous and all of that. <clears throat> but I'm just wondering if there's something to that. And I don't mean necessarily the enemy of the people, but I mean what he has tapped into, that that he's he's jiving with a lot of folks that uh, that feel the same way. And if the media should be a little bit more introspective rather than kind of always either blaming Trump or or blaming the, you know, the Mark Levins of the world and the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. Yeah, I do think just in terms of the mainstream media, um, listen, a lot of us come from coastal yeah. uh, demographics. That's just the reality of the thing. I think the thing I worry most about is the business model we can slip into where even if I'm a print journalist, I'm, now I'm a broadcast journalist. There I know what columns get better read. And my bosses tell me, don't worry about it, just write what you want but I sort of know that model is up there. I want to drive traffic. And how do I drive traffic? I write something nasty about Donald Trump. And I'm afraid we've fallen into the habit of making him our business model. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we should do is figure out what's life going to look like after Trump when we no longer have this very convenient battle to wage. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I do think it can get just boring. Mm -hmm. you know, I, 
I, I, I don't like Trump, but I, it's just boring to me to read another column. So, but he's good for business. He's good for business. And so I, I do worry a little that we, some people and some publications fall into that trap. That's the ballgame, folks, right there. Uh, Donald Trump is good for business. And David Brooks even admitting that you have to write something bad about Donald Trump to, in essence, get the ratings and drive the business. I mean, that, that's it. And, and that's the problem. The media is constantly all negative on Trump because they know it's good for business and it's all about ratings. And that's not good for the democracy. And it sure isn't good for journalism. Back in a moment. Time for some news, and that means just the news.com, and that means you know Sophie Mann. Sophie Mann, good to see you. Good to see you, David. What do you got? There's you always have something, and it's usually pretty juicy, pretty. I'm when mm -hmm. I say juicy, I don't mean like you know <laughs> sensational, but right. it's it's buzzy. Well, today we do have a buzzy story. So um, coming out of George Mason University, specifically their Center for Media and Public Affairs, mm -hmm. is a report today talking about late night television show hosts, Jimmy Fallon, Stephen Colbert, mm -hmm. and the like. Effectively, this one professor, Robert Lichter, who's been studying um, late night comedy for 30 years at this point, mm -hmm. um, recently produced a study saying that 97% of jokes made at the expense of political candidates this cycle have been at Donald Trump's expense as opposed to Joe Biden's. Can you believe that? 97%. Mm, it's really sad. It's, it's really I mean, sad. it's just a lot. I mean, and that, you know, so uh, Professor Lichter looked at 455 jokes, or excuse me, um, more than that, 455 jokes that he looked at were at the expense of President Trump, whereas only 14 were about Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't even include the nearly 70 jokes that were at the, at the expense of um, President Trump's family members and members of his administration. Yeah, well, so, yeah. yeah, no, so it's really, it's more all-encompassing even than that. Um, you know, Professor Lichter points out that this has always been sort of the case. Republicans are typically the target of these jokes more so than Democrats. But even in the 2016 election, Trump mm -hmm. only took 78% of the hits, mm -hmm. whereas Hillary Clinton took 22. Um, and it just, this is like the most off balance he's ever seen it. He wonders, I think we all do, what they're going to do if President Trump loses the upcoming election, yeah. which is a possibility. Who are they going to make fun of? Yeah, no, for sure. I got to tell you, not to date myself, but when I was watching Johnny Carson, and uh -huh. that's true, uh -huh. uh, by the way, it would be, look, it would be a 50-50 split. I mean, he yeah. would get on Reagan, but he would get on Carter, and it would just be about the same. Um, but, but what's been sad to see is that Stephen Colbert, okay, that's one thing, that's mm -hmm. one level, but now we're seeing the Jimmy Fallon's, I mean, who's mm -hmm. kind of like the nice guy yeah. uh, persona, and even, I mean, he's getting flack from uh, some of his liberal buddies. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it is it is NBC, and you know, I mean, you know what SNL has looked like these past several right. years. It's just one hit after another. Professor Lichter does speculate that um, after uh, George Bush was elected following Bill Clinton's presidency, Clinton actually received most of the late night hits uh, in the year 2001. So Lichter says, mm. even if Trump loses, we might still continue to see jokes at his expense as opposed to a Democratic politician. Wow. Sophie, thanks for the information. Of course. I appreciate it. Yeah. Sophie Mann, Manning, the uh, Newswires. No, not new. We are a Newswire, if you true. think about it. What am I talking about, Newswire? All right, Sophie, thanks. Uh, tomorrow on the big show, uh, we're going to have a, a guest from the White House, I think.